0: Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today, Derek Myron has a special guest on, and that is Elliot Peters. Elliot is the Managing Director of RA Capital Advisors. Mr. Peters plays a key role in the firm's strategic direction and execution of client engagements. RA Capital focuses its efforts in M&A, activity for the small to medium-sized privately held business. Derek, how are you this morning? I'm doing great, Eric. Fantastic. You, you, you brought Elliot on the show today. Why'd you bring him on?
2: There is lots of activity happening in the M&A uh, field today, and I Elliot p- pays, his firm is uh, key to that to many business owners, and I thought he could shed some real light on what's going on out there and really inform our audience. So, uh, Elliot, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: So you guys are busy, really busy. We
3: are. Yeah, no, we had, uh, we probably our busiest quarter ever in, uh, in Q4. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Two two thirds of our uh, two thirds of our transaction volumes closed in Q4, including uh, two in the very last week of the year. So um, I didn't even make the the New Year's ball drop. I was uh, um, I dropped around uh, eight p.m. when we closed our last deal.
2: <laughs> wow, wow, that's exciting. Well, Elliot, why don't you tell our audience about your background and experience? and uh, education.
3: Uh, I'm actually an accountant by background. I'm a CPA. Um, I went to undergrad at uh, UC Santa Barbara. They have a terrific accounting program there. Uh, After that, I worked with uh, uh, Arthur Anderson and Ernst & Young in in various audit roles. And, um, you know, did that for about three and a half years. And for for the last 17 years, I've been working uh, at RA Capital. And and now I'm one of the uh, one of the managing directors, and and really kind of lead the day-to-day execution, and you know our experience has been been pretty vast. We're a 32-year-old uh, a boutique investment bank. So I lead uh, M and A transactions. You know, we typically will uh, will close. You know, between five and, and seven transactions a year through uh, through a variety of industries. And you know, we've had uh, we've had terrific experience. Uh, you know, with with a lot of different uh, companies working through challenges and and family transitions and in M and A, and also you know sometimes in, uh, in in other types of family transitions.
2: So it sounds like you have too much personality to be hanging out with accountants and uh, auditors. What uh, what led for the change that you left the accounting industry to get to M&A?
3: Yeah, well, I think uh, I think that might, that might have been one of it, and I can I can thank some of my my uh, UCSB roots for that. It's a it's a very social school. Um, and, uh, and really kind of taught you to, you know, you live, uh, in one square mile with with a lot of folks, but what, what I do is it's, it's, uh, it's really rewarding and and you get to, you know, one meet a lot of, a lot of people deal with a lot of challenges and, and, you know, it, it takes, uh, it takes a little personality to kind of get inside, you know, both the, the owner dynamics, the family dynamics, but also on the other side, you got to understand the buyer dynamics, the investor dynamics, and, and really try to, uh, to understand what's driving folks. And so I think one of the, the big, uh. Uh, misconceptions about investment banking—it's all you know. People buried in spreadsheets. You know, it's 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 not. You know, I spend eighty percent of my day talking to people over Zoom on the phone and in meetings. <laughs> you know, in in uh, in prior times, uh, but you know, you really need to listen and think on your feet and be creative with uh, with solutions a lot of times. So. I think it was a it was a really good fit with uh, you know having that background to to understand what makes a business tick by going through uh, you know uh, you know kind of a boot camp of, of auditing but kind of use uh you know use uh, some of my my personal skills to uh, to uh, to kind of apply that to to problem solving and, and project management.
2: Yeah, so you're saying there's both science and art to putting together an M and A deal because there's especially closely held businesses there's a lot of emotions and a lot of different sacred cows and how do we get all of these different competing goals met to find the right solution for a business owner totally agree tell me who do you guys um who do you guys serve tell me who your ideal clients who what what do you guys specialize in with the size the size of of uh, businesses what what do they look like
3: yeah well, most of our clients are you know family-held or entrepreneur-led businesses you know 10 to really, you know, 200 or, or more in uh, million in uh, in revenue. On the technology side, you know, we've worked as companies as, as small as, you know, $3 million that they have got annual recurring revenue in, in that range, you know, but I'd say for the, the most of them that w- that we deal with, you know, I'd say if, if you said what 70% of our tractions are probably companies with, you know, 25 to to 100 million of revenue.
2: Okay. And what kind of bottom line EBITDA do they normally have? What
3: yeah, normally uh, and really, I kind of this is what you know. I call kind of institutional minimums, and by that, you know, where a lot of the, the private equity community and the, and the larger strategics get interested, you know, it's, they're really looking for kind of two to three million of EBITDA uh, if it's a kind of a more traditional uh, industry, or again, if it's a uh, if it's a software as a service type business, you know, kind of the, the institutional minimums are right around three million of uh, annual recurring revenue.
2: Okay. So the size of transactions, what kind of, what's the minimum in the upper bound f- for your guys' firm? What, what kind of size do you guys normally see as far as a sale value?
3: yeah I mean we've worked on transactions that are you know half a billion dollars and and uh we, we like to say there's no upper bound uh and uh you know the irony is a lot of times the the larger the transaction you know, different complexities but uh but there's a lot more systems within the companies but you know because we focus on the family led companies there's just not a lot of them that kind of reach that uh that size range so probably in the last seven years we've done Three transactions that are north of two hundred fifty million dollars. You know, all the rest are are kind of in the uh, you know the size ranges we talked about.
2: Okay, and the the lower bound is wh- how yeah, small yeah. of a transaction?
3: Yeah, probably around fifteen million dollars.
2: Okay, and are you guys exclusively on the sell side, or do you guys represent uh, both buyers and sellers?
1: Uh, we
3: exclusively represent or nearly exclusively represent family owned companies and typically they're sellers not buyers so you know we we don't try to go out and 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 uh and represent uh, you know who would be buyers of our eventual clients and that that really kind of keeps us independent and that's one of our one of our value propositions is you know we want to really be kind of an independent advocate for for these families you, you know because they're you know this transaction is a just very 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 important for them you know life-changing in, in a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of ways and so you know we really want to be someone that can be as, as free as conflicts as possible so typically that drives to the sell side so i think over the last five years it's been about 80 percent sell side you know maybe one buy side and, and the rest raising capital you know also for for family life companies
2: okay that was going to be my next question so you guys do help and and uh do a fair bit of of raising capital on the on the debt side for for these companies as well
3: yeah no both both on the debt and the equity side and i think what's interesting is you know because of of how much liquidity there is in the markets you know there's a lot of times i've, I've talked myself out of sell-side engagements when i when i explain to uh, to a family that you know they don't have to sell the company to to get a 30 percent owner out um, there's there's a lot of uh a lot of solutions in the you know kind of non-bank financing world or or the non-control equity world that, that can really help some transitions where there's uh, where there's multiple owners. Uh, so, you know, we, we try to take a pretty objective approach depending on, on what the owners want to do. And, and, you know, some of those solutions could be, can be pretty eloquent and, and find a, create a solution that, uh, you know, that, that people weren't even aware of. And, and it's really been the last five years, some of this, uh, some of these strategies have, have come through from the, uh, the private equity community. So, you know, it's pretty exciting to talk about with families and as much as, um, You know, on our side, you know, you don't like to see a sell side go away when you can tell a family that they don't have to sell their business in order to get, you know, their uncle out of it. You know, it's uh, it's pretty rewarding and and tends to lead to a much longer client relationship.
2: That's great. Well, why don't you talk about the uh, macro forces at play today in the current M&A landscape?
3: Yeah, well that's a uh, it's it's a it's a pretty interesting uh, world right now as I said we had a we had a really busy fourth quarter and uh in that you know we weren't alone in in uh in in that uh in that sense, you know. I mean, you know COVID, you know, a lot of people expected that was just going to shut down M&A and they were right for about 3 months. But what's happened is interest rates have just gone you know down near to zero as uh, as we all know. And so there's just more and more money pouring into uh, alternative investments, which, you know, in our case is, is the private equity community. And so these, uh, these firms they've gotten over the last 10 years, they've gotten almost three times as much money as they had before they're projected to have double under management five years from now. And so you're, you know, what it, what it's doing, it's just creating this buyer universe that is just vast and diverse and, and, uh, you know, much more so before, and it's, it's not just, you know, kind of pure private equity firms, they're buying companies on average. Now, each, company a private equity firm buys makes two, you know, two to three add-on acquisitions. So you're kind of creating this, uh, this universe of strategic buyers every day as these, uh, as these companies go. And so um, what that does for us is when, when we go to market, we're just, we're just finding a much deeper pool of, of buyers. And a lot of times, especially when you're talking about, uh, you know, family owned companies or entrepreneur led companies, th- that universe isn't changing at the same rate. And so it's creating this scarcity and mismatch of, of supply and demand where, you know, people are really looking for and, and hoping to seek out and, and purchase these, these companies. And, and it's giving you know, our clients a, a lot of leverage and, and, uh, and some pretty attractive valuations.
2: I bet. Are you seeing two to three times as big of an uh, audience pool or how, how much bigger is it for these uh, businesses that are taking their business to market?
3: I think there's last count, there was 5,000 private equity firms just in the United States, plus all the strategic buyers. So honestly, we're limiting our buyer's universe and it's really more being more selective. And so... Um, I'd say it's hard to say how much bigger the pool is, but you know maybe if I was going to think ten years ago, if I was you know looking at a company and said, know, oh, maybe there's three or four buyers here, yeah now there's twelve that are strategic or private equity backed, and then you know again once you're kind of at the institutional minimums, you have the whole some subset of the whole you know five thousand universe of, uh, of 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 uh, standalone firms to uh, to choose from as well, so. It's hard to say if it's two or three times. You, you know, I probably make the arguments ten times. So some wow. of the challenge actually is, is is picking how best to go to market. You know, we've we've done transactions. Where we've gone to ten folks, and we've done ones where we went to three hundred. Um, you know, and and really, it's about how do we how do we effectively make a market for for the company. And and I think what's what's most surprising is we're wrong as many times as we're right about who the eventual buyer will be. And so what I mean is that. You know you, you know a lot of times people say hey look this this company they got to be the buyer it makes all the sense in the world you never know what's going on with that company they could have just digested a big acquisition changed ceos or you know, redone their debt you know I call it be you a know, deal restriction or their board you know something happened and their board just doesn't want them doing deals and then you might have a, a company or a, or a firm you've never heard of that all of a sudden did a few acquisitions and they're just they're just on a tear and um you know, there's, you know, they kind of have a two or three year window where they really want to grow and and you catch them in the window and, you know, they're really going to, you know, their question to us is, Hey, what does it take to win? And, and so, you know, we're seeing that a lot in probably, you know, the, you know, most of the transactions we did again, probably half of them, I guessed right on the buyer and half of them, you know, someone halfway came out of left field and, and really just blew our socks off. So it's, uh, it's a it's an exciting time and, and you know, really kind of got to take a pretty objective approach and, and really re rethink your assumptions almost, you know, daily as you're uh, as you're looking at your buyer universe.
2: Yeah. So from time to time, I, you know, or not, I guess, mo- probably more often than not, we we hear from the business owner that says, listen, we have, you know, one or two strategics, but they don't want to participate in the process. They'll only give us this bid if if uh, we buy directly from them. Uh, what do you tell that business owner?
3: If you want to sell your business for less than it's worth, go ahead. I mean, the uh, the only reason people don't participate in processes is because they know they won't win. And I think the other dynamic that's interesting, and COVID's really uh, put put a, uh, an emphasis on it, is we're seeing bid disparity that I've I've never seen before. And What I mean by bid disparity is if you look at of you know uh, uh, the the four auctions we ran last year, so of, of our six transactions, four were auctions the difference between the lowest bid and the highest bid was at least double and in one case it was four times four times like wow one person wow. bid 25 one person bid 100 same information same company and uh, and so you know it's it's mind blowing you know even even to me to 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 go back and look at that and and the other part of it is in some of the cases it's not the private equity firm on the bottom it's the private equity firm on the top and cuz what we're seeing is people have a very Non-homogeneous view of the future. You know, some people look at you know um, COVID and they see various risks. Some people look at it and see various opportunities, depending on the company. And so you're not getting as a kind of steady a view of uh, of the future. And that's that's how people underwrite uh, the value: is, is what do they think the future of this company is? So, you know, anytime someone says again, oh, this is I'm the most strategic buyer. This is what I'll pay. You know, you got to take my deal. I'm not going to mess around. It's you know, it's it's bogus. It, it might be true but I would question unless they're in some universe where they're so specialized that no one else wants to touch them. Chances are the person's just lowballing you. Um, and, uh, even if it looks fair, it doesn't mean it is. And again, I've, I've been equally surprised on value. Sometimes, you know, we, we tend not to kind of promise the moon. Um, I mean, we had a company that we sold for double what we told the company we thought it was worth it last year. And, you know, obviously that's a great outcome for, for everybody. Um, but you just, you just don't know until you go to the market and, I think having worked on the buy side more in my kind of previous uh, experience at the firm, your objective as a buyer is to get the company as cheaply as possible with as least competition as possible. And so, you know, it, you know, and, and because these buyers know how competitive this world is, that's what they're trying to do. And you know, they really try to. You know, say we're a great home. We're going to do all these wonderful things for you. You don't want to go through a process. It's a big time and hassle. And you know, it's a it's a it's a self serving comment. And so, not to say they don't always kind of put out an offer that's uh, that's fantastic, but more often than not, when we see those situations, it's they're they're not paying top dollar. Exactly.
2: Let me pivot a little bit here uh, with the change in the White House and the January fifth elec- uh runoff in Georgia allowing the democrats to get 50 votes in the senate tax policy looms that gosh if if they end up switching to the tax regime that that the biden campaign put out during the as the the run-up to the election if they're able to get that through and make it effective for next year how is that affecting business owners that you talk to are they saying oh my gosh I see that they could potentially double the capital gains rate for people over a million bucks. Is that? Do you see that influencing behavior, uh, Elliot? We absolutely need to get a deal done in 2021, or have you really not seen much or heard much around that motivating? But uh, potential sellers.
3: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll answer by. It. There's a reason we closed four deals at the end of 2020, and it's uh, because. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone knew that wasn't going to happen in 2020. And so as of right now, you know, that rhetoric is not front and center. They they decided to to uh, you know, focus on a few other things, but it's February. So um I think is it 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 has been a factor people thinking about it and it's, you know, uh, you know, you know, no one no one's projecting lower taxes. And so any business owner that uh, you know that that we're dealing with, it's 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 a factor, and I think for for some folks it will push it over the edge. And as soon as that becomes kind of a, a headline issue, I think we will see a lot of a lot of folks run. And I think thing for for people to remember, you know, M A, you don't you can't sell your company in three weeks. And so one of the transactions we closed the last week of January, um, I called the owner in July because we had met in 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 uh, in in the pre- previous January. Uh, and said, hey, look, if if you want to get going, we gotta go like now. And you know, we started July 15th, we closed on December 29th. And so and that was fast. And so um, you know, if it's something that's on business owners' minds, it's it's really, I would say to be safe, you really wanna start, you know, seriously considering doing something come, you know, March, April 2021, if you wanna, you know, make sure you're done by December because Otherwise, you're in, 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 in a situation where you're kind of begging someone to buy you fast. And again, you, you really you know, give up a lot of your leverage uh, by, uh, by, by letting everyone know that this, uh, this tax uh, uh, change is, is, is driving you and, and they'll try to ca- try to capture some of that value from you. And I, we had plenty of buyers do that when you know, we, we took a company market in a market in Q4 and we had probably two buyers that said, look, we'll close in four weeks you know, and you and they showed us a math problem where you know we're going to save in taxes if there's a change in taxes, and you know, and during the math problem, they're taking half the savings for themselves, and so, uh, <laughs> you know, you really, you know, you really want to keep control of of your process, and you know, and you got to give yourself six or seven months just to, just to be safe. So um, I think we will see you know some of that, and especially if the the rhetoric starts picking back up.
2: Fair point. Okay. How do you help businesses who are seeking investment or considering a sale?
3: First and foremost, we uh, you know as, you know with our background as, as CPAs, we'd be po- both have people out of out of the audit world and also out of the world of m due diligence. You know i think one, one thing we're very effective of is, is is helping with them kind of the pre pre-assessment of of where the risks are um and uh and, and kind of you know propping them up to to a level that they look and, and feel really clean to to the buyer and so that's you know why we like to have a little bit extra time on the front end is really to help to help them to design a process that's going to meet their objectives but also spend enough time with their books and their records to to make them look and feel. Like they've been, you know, doing things, you know, in you know a slightly uh, a more professional way. If it hasn't been that way for their, um, you know, for, for their full existence, and sometimes that's something we can do. Sometimes we need to bring in, you know, um, outside experts. Uh, but but really, I think you know having a, a specialty in working with these companies, they're they're all unique. They all have things they do really well. They all have things that maybe they didn't focus on, and so we, we really try to identify those things that uh, the buyers are going to pick on and and mitigate them as much as possible as early as possible. Possible, so that you know when we go to market, it, you know that's uh, it's a, it's a, it's a smoother process.
2: You, you want to make them look institutionally investable, right? So that they uh, the institution knows, hey, that this is something I can invest in, I can count on, and the numbers work and are accurate, and those kind of perhaps they've been running it as a family business, more about how how does it best serve the family, and now you're trying to change that to more of an institutional mindset. Is that a fair uh, description?
3: No, it's a very fair description. As I like to say, I like to present something in our materials that looks and feels professional. But when they dig in, I want it to continue to look and feel professional as they go down to, you know, kind of the the real root of, 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 of the data. And so, you know, you know, again, with our ex, you know, due diligence folks, it's like having you know a, a, an IRS agent, ex IRS agent on staff, you know, for uh, for tax purposes. You know, we really kind of make the what's under the covers, you know, look and feel probably at institutional grade. Um, and and just the way we 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 help them present their forecasts and present the value proposition, you know, we really make sure we're we're kind of have have helped the the company present that with with data and rehearse with the company so that they can they can say and do things in a way that's. You really more um uh, you know institutionally you know normal uh, and you know there's a lot of lingo and buzzwords that and you know, if you haven't lived in the world you don't uh, you don't necessarily use and you know we don't need to help reinvent these companies but if we can if we can coach them and and, and kind of really help uh, you know behind the scenes to to make everything that the, the buyer looks at look and feel they're they're buying a publicly held company as, as much as possible it's uh, it goes a long way because that's, that's one of the biggest disadvantages of these privately held companies they've never done it before they're not organized um, and the buyers take advantage of that, so we, we really try to flip that and, and prepare them so well that we can we can keep control of the process for, uh, for everybody
2: Great. let's uh, uh, talk about uh, the headcount at RA capital and capacity. How many engagements a year is the ideal amount to, for your current capacity at RA?
3: Yeah, no. It, uh, we have a, a headcount of about uh, about twelve. We also have an international network that we use to help, uh, you know, bring bring foreign buyers to the table when when that when that is a thing. You know, with COVID, that's uh, hasn't hasn't been used as much. But uh, um, but yeah, you know, we have about fourteen firms around the world that uh, that we work with to uh, to help connect with uh, with you know, various buyers in, in in the important markets uh, around the world. But you know, we we like to think of ourselves as you know low volume, high quality. So we typically will look to do five to seven transactions a year. We're not a brokerage where we're just listing five companies a week and hoping we close one. You know, if we if we take something on, we want to close it, and and, and it needs um, it needs a lot of senior level attention and focus, and you know i think that's another thing that i'm i'm really proud of you know i've been with the firm 17 years i'm another managing director i've worked with for 16 years i have a vice president i've worked with for 10 years another one i worked with for 8 years the two principals have been there over 20 years you know we we have a we have a lot of experience and a lot of experience with each other, um, and so uh, we we really kind of work as a team and, and 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 we all decide which which transactions we're gonna we're gonna work on. And part of it is, are we sure we can get this done? Because we we don't like failure, and failure means not closing the transaction. So it's uh, and, and, and because of you know all the help the uh, our our client base needs, we just can't do twenty a year. You know, we really wanna wanna do the you know do the right thing for the for the for the ones we take on.
2: So if, if the business owners that are listening today and they're saying, listen, I'm thinking about potentially say, selling between now and over the next three years, and yeah, I see that debt rates are unbelievably cheap, That that's really advantageous. Tax rates are really, really cheap, and there is a number of buyers what are the things that they should do to look at, should we consider a process this year or should we put it off for another couple of years? Because I hear, I hear from business owners say, you know, look at how fast we're growing. We're growing at 20% a year, or 15% a year. And my comment to them is, do you think you're going to grow faster than the increase in the cost of tax rates and or higher debt prices or fewer buyers? What should those people do to make an informed decision to say, is it wise for me to potentially wait a couple of years and grow the business or consider a process this year because of economics. What should that business owner do who's listening to the show?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's as much of a personal decision as it is a math problem. And so I think what uh, you know Alex like say is first, let's let's look at what you need to believe to you know your break even point is. And so if taxes are going up, um, are you outgrowing that? yes or no? if uh you know, making a, an assumption the market is homogenous and you know will remain exactly as it is for the next 5 years that might be good or it might be not so good. I mean, there's a lot of businesses we knew that just got crushed by COVID that were waiting that extra year, you know, because they were going to grow and then they shrank. Uh, And so owners need to keep their objectives in mind and and kind of think of the why, because if taxes and, you know, I mean, I'd say if we're looking right now, we're in a terrific market, taxes are probably not going to get any lower. And so I, I think if they're say, Hey, I'm two years out or three years out, you know, I think there'd be have to be a pretty compelling reason to uh to, to keep putting it off. Uh, because again, the the market is the one thing you can't control. And sometimes the market just shuts down. I mean, I remember, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I mean, I was I was golfing every day. I mean, there's, there was nothing to do. Uh, And, you know, because there's, there's nobody doing deals and we were all expecting that might happen, you know, again, the pandemic. And thankfully that only lasted about three months, but owners really got to be inward looking there and say, Hey, what are my objectives? Why am I doing this? You know, because I mean, we've seen all sorts of things derail the. Uh, you know, I'm going to do it in two years planned. Whether it's their health, you know, health of a, you know, health of employees or, or 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 spouses, tax policy, but most of all, capital markets. You know, that sometimes the market window is open, sometimes the market window closed.
2: Is it fair to say that this is the best sellers market you've seen in your career?
3: Yes, I mean it's uh, especially for the lower middle market companies um, because you know, what, what's happened with, you know, these, uh, these, these private equity firms is that it used to be they only wanted things with 10 or 15 in EBITDA. And then, you know, I kind of joke, they're like amoebas, they split every, you know, five years. And so...
2: Just to clarify, 10 to 15 million in profits, they were only considering those kinds of transactions previously?
3: Correct. Yeah, and that, by previously, I mean, call it 10, 12 years ago. But as as time has gone by, as some of these, you know, kind of the, the people that didn't make partner at those firms, they'd go raise a smaller fund that who would look at five million. And then the person who, you know, who didn't make partner at the five million fund would go raise a fund that, you know, focused on three million. So you've really created a lot of liquidity at the at the lower end of the market. And, and I think that's really kind of, you know, you know created um, a lot of opportunities. And on the flip side, because of all the, what we talked about, you know, previously, all these new Private equity platforms—you have just just a tremendous amount of strategic buyers that are that are backed by private equity funds, where acquisitions is a is a major part of their strategy. So the liquidity is just something I've 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 never seen before, and you know, and, and the low debt rates are are highly beneficial to uh, to these buyers.
2: Fantastic, fantastic information, Elliot. I want to thank you very very much for coming on the show. If you're a business owner and listening to this and want to get in touch with Elliot. Elliot, can you share how best for that individual to contact you?
3: Yeah, no, you can. Uh, our website is raca.com, Roger Apple, Charlie Apple. Uh, my contact information is there. Um, my email is epeters at raca.com. Uh, and my, uh, the firm's phone number, my phone number is on the website. So we're, we're always happy to just talk to folks and, and and understand their situation. And, you know, even if they're not looking to do something, you know, this moment or, or, uh, or in the near future, we have a lot of conversations and and try to steer people in the right direction. So, so happy to, uh, to talk to any of the listeners here.
2: Elliot, thank you so very much for your time. Eric, thank you for putting this all on for us. You want to close us here today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gentlemen, great job today. Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the show. What great information. Derek, I've got to say that I was, as I was listening to you and Elliot talk, there was, I was just kind of reflecting back on a lot of the podcasts that you guys have been putting out. And some of them have been, hey, here's some things to watch out for, because this could affect you negatively. And you've brought so many positive things, too. That's what I, what, what I really like, is that I, I keep hearing from you and your team that there are things that people can do to better their situation. We're not taking advantage of a pandemic. What we're doing is realizing there are things that are being put in place, whether it's law changes, things like that, that, that experts like Elliot come on the show and, and share with the audience so they can be prepared to take advantage of their own personal situation. So thank you so much for bringing this information to the, to the audience, Derek.
2: Thank you, Elliot and Eric. Thank you very much, as always.
1: Yep, absolutely. It's a pleasure being here. And our last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the Subscribe Now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. From everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.